The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 4. China and Russia both have land borders with 14 other countries. I'll show you Paris in the morning. I'll show you London afternoon. If you feel your Dublin heart is burning, yeah, well, you don't have to worry, cause we're blowing it soon. Yeah, you don't have to worry. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that will inspire you to travel and then show you how to do it on any budget. I'm Trav, the creator of Extra Pack of Peanuts, and with me today is a very special guest, the man who holds the incredible title of being the first person to complete a human-powered circumnavigation of the globe. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. He'll be giving you all the details. Jason Lewis from Expedition 360, thanks for joining the show and welcome. Oh, thank you for having me, Travis. Jason, uh, your story is, is really unbelievable, and I don't use this lightly. It's probably the one singular thing that most inspired me to start a podcast because I wanted to share stories like yours to many other people who haven't heard them before. So before we even get into your story, again, I just want to say thank you because you're the main reason right now uh, that a lot of people are sitting here listening to this podcast. <laughs> okay, well, that's... Uh... <laughs> So no, so no pressure, huh? <laughs> and no pressure, no pressure. Your story speaks yeah. for itself, my friend. Okay. And just a little backstory for the listeners, Jason. I know we emailed a little while ago. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but the first time I heard about you, I was actually watching the television series Long Way Down uh, with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. And they ran into this guy in the Sahara Desert who was on a bike. And it was just a short clip. It was maybe 30 seconds. And after you rode away on your bike, they came on and said, hey, we just met this guy, Jason Lewis. He's trying to go around the world using only human human power. And uh, I turned to my roommate and I said, you know, did you just hear what I heard? And we were both kind of incredulous. So we rewound the video. We heard the same thing. I still didn't think it was true. So I Googled your name, Jason Lewis, and Around the World. And that's when I saw your site, Expedition 360. And that's when I thought, man, I've got to get off the couch and start doing something because this guy's absolutely killing it. He's making me look bad. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I get you. I guess uh, you must get that a lot. Um, for people who haven't seen you or heard about your story on Leno or read your awesome book, um, why don't you just go ahead and tell people what the world's first human-powered circumnavigation of the Earth really means? And, of course, like, why did you even start doing this? So, uh, yeah, well, human power is, is something that doesn't involve um, motors or sails, for example. And uh, this was an idea that my former university uh, friend Steve Smith originally had in 1992. And back then, people had rowed across uh, a few people had rowed across oceans and and people had obviously bicycled and, and walked across continents. But um, no one had at, had, had at that point um, put together a continuous journey around the planet using just the power of the human body, mind and spirit. And, and Stevie came to me with this idea. Neither of us had any real uh, experience as so-called adventurers. Um, I was actually, I had a window cleaning business at the time, and he was a, an, an environmental scientist. But it, it just sounded like one of these incredible um, ideas that didn't, wasn't just a variation on a well-worn theme. Um, it, it sounded genuine, uh, genuinely unique. 
in so much as it it just was like wow it it you know it very pure you know with just just the, the idea of using your own body to to reach you know to the ends of the earth and back again and i think that was one of the things that really appealed to me um in the early in the early stages but nobody wanted to sponsor us um it was it took 2 years to build a boat that we would cross the atlantic pacific and indian oceans in and we tried unsuccessfully to get sponsorship and eventually we had to borrow a little bit of money uh, of friends and family to at least get off the starting blocks and make it across our first ocean the atlantic to to um to to the us so it was a real sort of i mean i think you you know if you read the book you probably pick up the fact that it this was very much an organic endeavor um it wasn't big funding uh it very much depended upon the people that we met along the way and initially our, our our sort of friends and family to help us sort of get the whole thing off the ground in the first place so so and that was that was the beginning it was sort of real um you know it was just the, just the belief that this thing in a way had to be done um even though we weren't experts and and many many years later you know you touched upon the story of of meeting Ewan McGregor, the, the, the film actor, and his buddy Charlie Borman in, in the desert in Sudan. And, and by that point, this was now, you know, 12 and a half years later, and I was just six months away from completing the thing. It took 13 years to complete. By that point, um, I sort of had a bit better idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> Finally. And, yeah, finally, it sort of um, you know by that point I'd, I'd got a fair, fair fair bit of experience under my belt. But but still, um, I remember that day. It was incredibly hot. It was a hundred almost one hundred and forty degrees um, in the Sahara Desert, and I was on my bicycle and I had all this water. I was carrying all my water about seventy liters of of River Nile water that I'd um, uh, that I was was. Um, uh, purifying with iodine okay. and I was on this extremely desolate stretch of track and these two motorcyclists appeared over the next dune and and they stopped because there's no one else around I mean this is not a normal <laughs> road and they stopped and said, oh. so I and I I'd, I'd heard about their trip I'd heard about this 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 journey and I just assumed that Ewan Ewan was in was it was the lead motorcyclist and I and I sort of tried to and, and so I um, attempted a a joke. I said, "Oh, it you and you and McGregor, I presume, as in you know the the, the famous encounter between Livingston and Stanley." And, right. and he said, "No, actually, actually, I'm Charlie Borman." So that I got off to a completely duff start, <laughs> and um, and but they were you know they were very kind, and they gave me a bottle. I remember they gave me this bottle of um, Evian chilled Evian water that had been in the back of one of their film vehicles, and this stuff just sounded just just tasted absolutely incredible and 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 Ewan looked at my looked at all these these bottles of of Nile water that I had on, on the back of my bicycle he said oh are you are you drinking that stuff and I said <laughs> yeah it's you know it's 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 all I've got to drink out here and and that's when they gave me this bottle of Evian water so wow. so then we just exchanged notes and and we kind of we went on our separate ways but that was that was a sort of a memorable memorable sort of encounter there in the Sahara Desert so yeah, I bet that was like gold, really, to you. And um, so, all right, you you mentioned that it took you thirteen years to complete. And when you first began, what was the plan? How long were you and your buddy Steve going to take to circumnavigate the globe? What did you think in the beginning? 
It, well, it, it could have. We thought it could be done in three to four years. Okay. You have to go. You have to take into account the various weather. Um, seasons crossing oceans, for example, the hurricane season crossing Atlantic and the, the typhoon season crossing the Pacific. So inevitably, there were going to be points where we'd have to stop for a while um, to wait for, for, for the right window in the weather. But the main problem that we faced was actually um, was, was lack of funding. Okay. Um, w- nobody wanted to sponsor us. So, for example, after we left London, we cycled down through France, Spain, Portugal, and then we we pedaled uh, this boat, this 26-foot-long by 4.5-foot-wide boat across the Atlantic to Miami. It took 111 days. And then when we arrived in, in, in Miami, um, we spent it had to spend the next five months fundraising, um, doing talks, selling T-shirts for $20, names on the boat for $20, and, and to, to A, pay back the money that we borrowed to, to get off in the first place, and B, raise the funds to then cross the United States. And this was a recurring theme throughout the whole expedition, you know, having arriving in a arriving at the end of a of a leg and then having to raise money for the next one so this this was part of the reason why it ended up taking 13 years in addition to various accidents and mishaps along the way right which which we'll get into so i mean you started i believe in night was it 93 or 94 1994 yeah. okay so you kind of hit it at a bad time i mean i imagine nowadays not that it would be easier to do physically but if you were to do start it nowadays with the internet and with social media and with like Kickstarter and, and stuff like that to fund projects, I, I don't know, but I would imagine it might be a little easier to do now. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean we started off back in the days of analog and the word right. you know, internet was just beginning, at least for um for for the general sort of uh, population um, and yeah it was it, back in those days it was still the whole thing where you where you wrote off hundreds of begging letters to big corporations and 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 if you didn 't fit into the into what they were looking for at that particular time or if you didn 't you know if you didn 't have the experience of course we didn 't have experience um, and if you were asking for too much money if the whole thing was taking too much long too, too long, which ours was i mean typically these are you know expeditions that marketing managers like are sort of three to six months and but so all of we really ticked none of the boxes for back then and, and like you say these days, you could definitely. Um, start a campaign on Kickstarter um, or one of these uh, crowdsourcing campaigns. Or oh, there are lots of other, lots of other avenues to raise money, at least to get going that, that weren't available back then. Right. And I, I think one of the most poignant points you've brought up already is that before you did it, and this is the part of the story that I love, is before you started doing it, you know, you had a window washing business. You weren't some sort of super athlete in any way. You weren't really anyone special, were you? Like you just said, I'm going to do this. And and we're going to, you know, do something no one has done before. And I think that's that's pretty amazing. So you, you didn't have any real training under your belt, did you? No, we didn't. Um, and I think in a way that might have been a good thing because we okay. didn't really know what we were getting into. And ignorance <laughs> is bliss sometimes. Of course, you know? of course. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, but as far as getting fit, we were notoriously lazy uh back then and i mean we just had this slightly sort of gung-ho attitude like well a we were so busy you know just getting trying to get away from greenwich right that we we never really had the time to spend you know umpteen three or four hours a day getting fit so it was one of those things where we thought well we'll just get fit as we go um and that was part of the reason why we chose 
a pedal boat to cross the oceans versus a rowing boat um, because we, we figured, you know, once we bicycled over a continent, across a continent, and we arrive at the end edge of the next ocean, then we will be theoretically fabulously fit for, for pedaling versus rowing. Um, and the other reason why we chose a pedal boat was that, um, if you, you know, this, this boat that we had built has a sliding hatch. And so in heavy seas, we we could enclose ourselves and protect ourselves in the elements versus a rowing boat where you're fully exposed right. all the time. Right, and so on that note, um, that uh, you talk about that a lot in your first book, the the crossing the Atlantic and all. But to give people an idea of, can you give people an idea of what that was like? I mean, you were 111 days on the Atlantic Ocean, and it was just you and Steve, correct? Yeah, it was. It was. It's a two person boat, so one person would pedal. Uh, for two hours in the day and typically three hours at night, but uh, there was only one pedaling position. So when you weren't pedaling, um, you could stretch out full length in this forward sleeping compartment, which was extremely claustrophobic and narrow and cramped, but actually became the most surprised real estate on the entire boat <laughs> because it was the only place that that you could really properly relax everywhere else you were constantly moving and because the boat was so small you the boats the, the boats actually um would would be always sort of even in a mild swell the, the things rocking around and and you have to sort of always be looking to to catch a hold to, to stop yourself from being sort of smashing your head against the inside of the cabin so uh, but uh, so if you weren't sleeping in the front you front compartment you could sit opposite the other peddler um you could make food on a small stove navigate repair things and but it quickly became you know when we left portugal it 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 became fairly obvious that this was going to be a, a mind-numbingly boring uh, <laughs> experience i mean the, yeah the absolute sort of hamster on a wheel scenario um and that the way to deal with this i mean occasionally a storm would come through we maybe had four storms and they, and that was when it, things got interesting right because the wind started blowing and the waves got big and you really had to concentrate but for 95 percent of the time the thing you know you were just out there and and nothing much happens. Um, so little things started to irritate us about the other person that you wouldn't think about, you know, making a big deal of on land. Um, and you because you can't get more than five feet away from the other person. Right. And, and, and humans just aren't really designed to be together for that long in such close proximity. So it really was a case of sort of adapting to this doll's house experience, as I think I describe it in the book. And and we 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 coped with it quite different ways. Um, I think Steve on that crossing he was quite um, he was quite motivated by the little dots on the chart that would typically be fifty miles a day. That was what we would pedal fifty nautical miles, which is about wow. sixty regular miles. And um, and so when when we when the progress was good, he, his moods would be you know would would be up. But if we if we didn't get very far of some days we would actually go nowhere or even go backwards those that would be reflected in his moods and i i think i i think i i said after a few weeks i realized you know you've got to forget about getting in some ways you have to forget about the other side it's too far away and and i sort of started focusing more on just you know the next cup of tea in a mars bar break or the next hot meal or you know, so I sort of broke. I broke the voyage up into these small increments. Yeah, and so 
All right, there was obviously a lot of trials and tribulations that you guys went through, and I would like you to speak a little bit, if you could, about some of the most difficult times. But I think the biggest part of this story, the most inspirational part, is that you persevered through it all. And I kind of want to know, what were you really ever close to quitting? And if you were, what, at what point was it that you wanted to quit? And then why did you continue to keep doing it for 13 whole years? Most people obviously would have given up after even going across the Atlantic or something like that? Yeah, I think the first ba- big tr- potential trip ender for me was getting my legs broken in Colorado. <laughs> right. Um, and I was rollerblading along this dual carriageway um, into this town called Pueblo, and I was about halfway across the country. And I just skated a really big day for me. It was 73 miles. A, a, an average day would be more like 50 miles a day on inline skates. And um, I thought I was safe on the hard shoulder. Um, and uh, I, I just it was one of those occasions where I thought, well, I, don't need to, I don't need to bother looking behind me because I'm on this hard shoulder. Anyway, this, I was run over by, um, it turned out to be an 82-year-old drink, drunk drive with cataracts. Wow. And he, he just didn't see me. And, and um, he carried on driving, went about a mile up the road. I, I meanwhile, was lying on the side of the road and, um, looking up at the sky, and I felt no pain whatsoever. I, I even though my legs had been, uh, with, with the bones were sticking out through my legs, um, I, I felt no pain. So I tried to stand up, and that's when I no- looked down and noticed that I was actually standing on the stumps of my lower legs. Oh, man. Anyway, I ended up in hospital for six weeks, and the surgeon told me that there was a good possibility of losing my left leg to osteomyelitis, myelitis, which is a bone infection, and and that was a, I think, the first point where I thought, you know, I'm going to have to go home. I'm going to have to finish, you know, throw in the towel and Steve will have to find someone else to, to, to carry on this expedition, this circumnavigation attempt with him. But I was lucky enough to keep the left leg um, eventually. And I, after nine months, I was able to continue. So, and I think it was, you know, what, what kept me, I I think it was the, Actually, really, it was the generosity of the people that we met along the way. Because mm. at one point, I was having to, I was having to seriously consider going back to England, only because I couldn't afford to live in Colorado right. uh, for the nine months it was going to take to recuperate. Um, and and the surgeon who fixed my legs, one day he said, you know, as I was about to be discharged from hospital, he said, you know, I've got a little log cabin up in the Rockies, in the foothills of the Rockies. Why don't you go and stay there for, for the length of time it'll take to recuperate? And so, and Steve's dad, who was living in Miami at the time, he came to look after me. And so it was really through that act of random kindness um, that I experienced numerous times throughout the U.S., I might, um, I hasten to add, um, that I was then able to sort of stay in the country and in time recuperate enough to be able to continue the expedition and this happened sort of time and time again um in all of the countries really that we passed through i think people keyed on the fact that there wasn't this wasn't a multi-million dollar funded project and that really the only way that we could continue it was was by the kindness of the people that we met along the way yeah that's that's absolutely amazing that they pushed you to keep going or not pushed you but that was the reason you felt you needed to keep going for for these other people and that they were then obviously getting inspired by you. And it was just this kind of circular reasoning of you're inspiring me, I'm inspiring you, and it keeps everyone going. And uh, it, it's 
I mean, obviously, it's amazing that to me, when I was hearing about your story for the first time, that you could get hit by a car. I mean, almost lose your leg. And then after nine months, say, well, you know, now I can keep doing it. So why don't I keep doing it? I, I could not believe that of all the things that you had encountered, I, I would imagine this would have been the worst. I think it was. I mean, you you touch on a very good point, Travis, that um, that it was the it was the fact that we had by the end towards the end. Um, many thousands of people who were sort of following online, and of course the digital age caught up to the expedition. Right, and, thirteen and, years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we I started off. We started off on the Atlantic with just a radio, a VHF radio, and a sextant sort of thing, and and by the end we were utilizing the the latest and greatest in satellite tech tech technology and and laptops and. Uh, we, you know, we were developing curriculum for schools online, and anyway, it was all, which, which sort of had its own set of problems, just having all this, all this, all this gear in the field. But it, it allowed, it allowed me to share the experience, um, uh, which made it a much richer experience in the long run. But I think it was, it was the fact that I had so many people following along um, by the end that, that in a way, the last couple three years kept me connected and, and gave me the reason to actually finish the thing. Yeah, I, I, it is amazing that, I mean, this peer, I guess you could call it peer pressure. Usually we think of that as a negative thing. But in this case, mm. it's, it's a thing that keeps you going because you know there's other people out there. If, if you give up, you feel like you're letting them down. I'm sure they wouldn't think that, you know, because mm. they think what you're doing is amazing. But to you, it's mm. this inspiration to keep going. And it, it's pretty amazing that you, you ended up finishing it Thirteen years later, I mean, most people, like we said, would have thrown in the towel probably after the first hundred days on the ocean. But did you have any times then? Obviously, you had some some bad times. What were the times that were just absolutely spectacular in their own right? Um, whether it was like you were in an area you loved, or you were doing something that you loved, or it was just like an emotional high at certain points. What what were some of the best parts of the whole journey? Uh, I mean, I I. I... I really did enjoy, for example, um, you know, it, it rollerblading through the through the deep south of the states, and I had some I had some, you know, negative uh, experiences that I touch upon in the book. But right. I also had incredible, you know, generosity. People taking me in, um, you know, people Americans would always stop me on the road, and they'd be like, "Hey, you know what? What are you doing on them there things?" Kind of thing. And then they were like, <laughs> and they would hear the backstory, and they were like, "Oh, why don't you come on home, and you know, we'll cook you up a, you know, a nice dinner or something." And and that and and that was my sort of experience. That was my memory of of crossing the U.S. Um, definitely and. Uh, but I mean, I loved, for example, the Solomon Islands in 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 the Southwest Pacific. That was wild and untamed, and this sort of one of those one of the sort of genuinely last wilderness areas on the planet. I think that was just crazy pedaling the boat into this village that we, we'd been told would be hostile, and actually the locals turned out to be just super friendly and nice and the kids came out and they dug out canoes and escorted us in and and at one point we had some some local people who came on the boat and they wanted to they wanted to see where the motor was you know and these were these were fishermen you know right from from the solomons and <laughs> and they had just the dugout canoes and they they clambered on board and they're like okay well show us the motor and 
and they were talking in pidgin english and we said no we don't have a motor and they and were like well what so we and and at this point i was i was traveling with chris um the guy who built the boat anyway we we pulled out the pedal unit from the center of the boat and we showed how it worked and 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 it was like oh it's like a bicycle sort of thing and like yeah it's it's sort of like a you know works like a bicycle and and they actually sort of almost felt sorry for us the fact that we didn't have <laughs> a motor um they thought oh these poor guys you know they're actually having to pedal this boat themselves but then the, and the solomons was 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 a great experience and and kayaking through indonesia was magical uh, komodo national park um that was just quite magical the sea life in that area of indonesia um the komodo dragons of course um and i have fond memories of tibet even though it was quite difficult to get in tibet at the time the eastern part of the country was closed but you know pedaling up over the himalayas that was just an incredible experience and um and then i loved syria for example which now is being torn apart right. torn apart by a civil war but but syria i have the fondest memory of the people of syria and they have that bedouin uh, concept of hospitality and and, and it was just there, w- there was hardly a day that went by where people someone didn't invite me into their home and and they were just the loveliest people and it's just it's quite bizarre now to be looking on the news and and seeing what these people are capable of doing to each other. And it's like, God, that's, you know, if, if these people are, are are sort of capable of of these of just this this brutality to each other, then then maybe it's sort of within us all kind of thing. And and that sort of, I have been inspired by people um, on my journey, but I've also thought, well, underneath underneath all of these differences you know maybe also where you know we have the capability to do terrible things to each other right well and here's my thought that i i've always had um you you did this 13 year journey it's obviously you went through rough patches and great patches and all but when you got back uh, i've always wondered what how did you spend your first few days like was there anything that you got home and you just couldn't believe had changed or you just really wanted to do or were you just overwhelmed how how was life when you got back how did you adjust i have a good memory of pedaling back up the river thames 13 years after having left greenwich the greenwich meridian line and and seeing a lot of buildings that i had never seen before for example the millennium dome which is this very ugly uh thing that they I think what did they create it for? I don't remember, but it was. <laughs> I don't know I either. A, a it is of, ugly. Yeah, no, but 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 to Londoners, they were like, oh yeah, the Millennium Loan was dome. It was one of these um, multi-million-pound um, things that that nobody really wanted. But anyway, but it, it's but the landscape of of London had changed dramatically, and um, and I remember arriving back and. Um, and being and seeing like there were members of my family there at the at the at, at the completion that I had never met before. Um, right. I had a couple of um, you know I had my niece who who I who, who I'd never met before and, and I didn't even recognize her and 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 in the weeks that followed um, it, it sort of the, there was an initial euphoria of, of completing this, but then there's, there's a, there was a there was a a sense of anticlimax, which I think is quite usual with these kinds of things. And then there was a period of actually trying to trying to readapt and reassimilate myself back into society, which which proved to be quite difficult because everything had moved on. I had this this frozen 
image of 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 home quote unquote of right. england but of course everything changes you know people don't wait for you and my friends had all moved on and got married and had kids and and i suddenly realized that actually this this place i'd pedal back into this sense of home didn't exist anymore and um and that what i had just done a lot of people had a hard time relating to and i had a hard time sort of relating to what was important to the average person in the uk at the time so i actually i found that i i, I ended up being back in Colorado where I'd spent those nine months after breaking my legs. And I found that actually I, in a way I knew more people back in Colorado than I knew back in London. And so Colorado became my home and it also became my base to write the book that I've just finished the, the three part book series. Um, initially I was offered a lot of money by uh, a big publisher for my story, but they wanted it written by a ghostwriter which is quite typical of these books, that nowadays adventure books. But when I saw the draft chapters that this guy had produced, they were just they were just rubbish. So I didn't sign the contract, and I turned the money down. And so it's been a sort of a really quite. It's been quite a sort of a hard road since the end of the expedition, writing the story and um, doing justice to this huge portion of my life. But it's actually almost it has actually been my um my my saving grace as well because being able to write the story myself has allowed me to uh overcome some of the more difficult parts of the journey some of the more traumatic hmm. elements of it that i didn't fully appreciate oh sorry i didn't fully process at the time and writing about them and exploring how i felt for example about being run over in Colorado and, and, and some of the other bad things that happened, writing about exploring how, how I felt about them has, has really, really allowed me to sort of process them properly and get them out of my head and put them out on paper and, and, and put the whole thing behind me and to make sense of the whole 13 years, because my reason for doing it did change over the years. It started off as a, it started off as a boy's own adventure, a bit of a lark you know, off to conquer the world, claim a first, but that didn't sustain me. And it was, in a sense, it was using it as an educational tool. Um, after I got hit in Colorado and we, we developed, we set up a nonprofit and we worked with teachers to develop, to develop curriculum, that became my reason to keep going over the years. So writing the book has allowed me now to, I think, to sort of finally kind of put it to bed and, and hopefully move on with my life. Wow. Yeah. Sort everything out and be therapeutic, I guess, at the same time. And that was the other question I had. Now that it's been five and a half years since you completed the trip and you've really had this time to reflect and you've written it out, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you learned from the trip? I mean, obviously, there's tons of life lessons going on here. But what are the things for you personally that you've taken away that have really made you a different and, and better person? I'd like to think that, um, and this is one of the things that I, I uh, only really discovered or rather I, I understood fully while writing the book. And that is that um, I, I, one of, I, I realized that one of the reasons I left England all those years ago to, to go on this expedition was to try and step outside of my sense of cultural self, i.e. being English. And I, I think that a lot of the problems that we face in the world today are, uh, if not created, at least 
perpetuated by our sense of tribalism, you know, American, English, uh, Japanese, Inuit, you know, we all have, we all bear these sort of cultural mantles that, that, that do, that determine uh, a lot of how we behave both, both in our, in our daily lives and just in the way that we vote and the way that we treat other people sometimes. And, and I think it does laden with laden that, that sort of cultural identity can laden us with certain biases and prejudices. So I, I was interested in just stepping outside of that, of that, of that cultural conditioning and in, immersing myself in the wilderness areas that, for example, the ocean is and, and the deserts. And when you're in these very desolate, quiet, empty uh, environments, you, you know, that sense of cultural um, conditioning falls away. And um, and that that turned out to be my experience after I mean after the Atlantic um, I, re- I write about it in that first book just that sense of of the English me you know fell away after 109 days and and, I, and there was a there was a sort of a two minute period of of sort of mini enlightenment for want of a better word that um, where, where I, I really felt there was a more of a universal uh, me underneath and 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 I sort of carried this through um, on on later stages um, of the expedition what I'm coming around to saying is you know at the end of the at the end of the expedition um, one of the things that um, I understood through through writing the story was was just what it was like to be on this little boat a thousand miles from land and what it took to uh, survive out there and the adaptations that I needed to make to to live in this closed system, um, you know, conserving water, conserving food, and uh, being mindful of how much electricity I was I was uh, utilizing from the solar panels and the wind generators. Because without fossil fuels, you really have to be careful of how much power you're you're using. And and if anything would break, I would have to fix it. So, as far as a takeaway. From this journey, I'd, I'm I'm trying to now apply the same lessons I learned on this little boat to my life on land because I think they're they're valuable lessons in terms of becoming hopefully a better world citizen that's more tuned into uh, living a sustainable lifestyle that is conducive for a habitable planet in 50, 100, 150 years time and not part of the problem. Right. Yeah, and I. I'm a huge proponent, anyone who listens to me or reads what I write knows I'm a huge proponent of just this idea of traveling, whether it's a one-week vacation or a 13-year journey, you know, just getting out and traveling and and being able to be around other cultures and other people, it's going to change your worldview, and obviously your worldview changed dramatically because you saw the whole world, but what advice would you give to people who obviously can't go on this type of epic journey but do want to travel how can they travel and and get this kind of authentic experience that you were able to have that took you kind of 13 years yeah i think i think i think absolutely right travis travel is um is is a really uh, good way to um uh, to not only experience the world but also maybe get to know yourself a little better in the process and i think it also makes you a better person because i think it helps you to 
understand that there are many, many different ways of um, the many different um, opinions, viewpoints in the world, and that really what it's all about to some degree is is um, developing tolerance of of other um, of other people and, and and other ways of looking at the world. But as far as you know, like you said, not everybody can take thirteen years off to go and do a journey like this. But <laughs> I, I think I think just to leave home in the first place. And to take that, you know, everybody's so busy these days that the most important thing you can do is just say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to make a date in my diary and I'm going to just go, um, you know, otherwise it'll never happen. You know, you just got to say, OK, this is this is this, I'm going to go in six months time or a year's time and just to make that booking, whatever it might be, um, and to commit, you know, to commit to doing whatever. It could just be a weekend or it could be a week. Um, and the other thing. Thing, as well as committing to a trip and, and sort of actually saying I'm definitely going to do this, the other thing I think is that helps is to is to think about how you're going to travel. I, airplanes are great things to get from A to B and to get to a different continent or different part of the world that you that would otherwise take forever in a pedal boat, for example. Thirteen years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like like I did, but but um, once you get there, maybe maybe think about traveling more slowly because I I really do believe that you experience more and you meet more interesting people and you 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 notice more about the environments that you're passing through if you're traveling slowly be it on a bicycle walking um rollerblading uh, human power is is a great way i think to travel yeah one of the things i wanted to note i um in your book you mentioned that you rollerbladed across america and i thought that was pretty neat but it was even more amazing because you had never rollerbladed before right yeah that's correct <laughs> I, I i set off from miami uh i had a couple of lessons but i was still falling every every sort of 10 or 15 yards but i had this theory that if i could do if i could do a mile on rollerblades and i could do 5000 miles to san francisco given enough time um i was also lucky enough to have steve my partner ride alongside on his bicycle for the first 300 miles to St. Petersburg. So I could sort of hang onto his shoulder and brace myself. <laughs> so that helped me to sort of get through that early, you know, those first few miles where honestly I thought, you know, this is, this is really ridiculous. And, you know, I'm, I'm just falling so often that there was, that was a great, you know, there's a, there's a real chance I'm just going to throw in the towel here. But, but yeah, that, that, that philosophy played out, not only crossing the U.S. on rollerblades, but also pedaling across the Atlantic. I mean, Steve and I had, I think, three days of sea experience between us before we left Portugal. But we thought, you know, if we can do, if we can do a mile on this pedal boat, then, then we can make it all the way across the Atlantic, just, just given enough time. Yeah, I just it particularly struck me because here you are doing something that no one's ever done. And instead of taking what would be, quote-unquote, the easy way out of biking, you decide you're even going to throw another uh, obstacle in your own way and rollerblades. So I just thought that was really cool that, that you decided, hey, I'm going to make this even harder, and I'm going to do something I haven't done before. Just even more inspiring that you decided to kind of keep upping the ante as you went along, which was really neat. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this, you know, there's, Bicycles are, are, are amazing things, and they're extreme. I, I don't think there's any other device that is more effective and more efficient than a bicycle in terms of the mileage you can get per day um, with the amount of effort you have to put into it. But I just thought rollerblades, that would just be another way to experience the US. And I just wanted to, I wanted to 
really get a glimpse of the underbelly of small town America. And I thought rollerblades, you know, people have biked across, people have, you know, Forrest Grump, Gump has, you know, run across. Right. But Walked maybe across, rollerblades, yeah. yeah well, but maybe rollerblades being unusual will allow me, it will sort of broker or provide a, a sort of a, be a catalyst to introductions to to people to real people and and that proved to be the case so i think the more unorthodox the travel within reason you know i would never want to for example you know use a pogo stick or something across <laughs> the u.s but the more un, unorthodox the travel the mode of travel i think the more interesting it becomes yeah and if you uh we've talked about your book a little bit the first book I think there's a picture in there if you pick up Jason's first book um of you rollerblading I think with your shirt off and in skin tight kind of like bike shorts and all that's pretty neat so your ha- I think you have long hair in that and it's like flowing behind you and all so uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure you were quite the sight for a lot of people down south and you have a story about that that uh if people want to hear about your story of being down south and what people kind of thought of you down there, they can pick up the book. But that leads me into my next uh, question is obviously I I think your story is absolutely phenomenal. Um, One of the most amazing true stories I've ever heard. And I'm a big proponent of trying to get it out there and letting it inspire people all over the world. So what are some of the ways that people can hear your story? Where can they find you? Well, there's a um, there's the website expedition360.com was which was the website for uh, for the human powered circumnavigation that we've been talking about. There's also a blog jasonexplorer.com. Basically, if you if you if you plug in Jason Lewis into into a Google browser, I believe it'll come up with with uh, some of those links. And you also have the book. It's a three part trilogy. So the first one's released. Is there any? news on the uh on the other two parts of that yeah the second part should be out in the u.s here in about six to eight weeks um so the first part dark waters it has been out it's out in soft cover format and also as an ebook um so if you have a kindle or um or an ipad you can you can download versions and the nice thing about the the ebook version is you get photographs as you mentioned whereas the print book um you just get the maps and the second part, Seed Buried Deep, will be out, like I say, uh, in a couple of months. So, so yeah. And, and I think the third part will be out fairly shortly as well in about three months. Okay. And I can, I can personally recommend the first one. I've read it. I have it on, the, uh, on my iPad, and that's how I was able to get the pictures and all. And I did hear a rumor, I don't know if this is true or not, of a movie possibly. Yeah, the, we, ha- we were very lucky to have a guy come along for sections of the journey to film um he because the thing took so long he was then faced with a fairly um sort of fairly mountainous task of making sense of this of this odyssey 13 years spanning i don't know how many different formats everything from hi8 to svhs to digital you know eventually we were filming on on hd but you know a lot of the early footage you have to go into a museum to be able to play the stuff these days <laughs> but yeah he's he kenny's actually um uh, finishing uh, a two-hour theatrical release that will be available on DVD, I think, within again, within within the next two months. Okay, yeah, great. I saw that, and I saw that you had a little, um, I don't know if it was Indiegogo or Kickstarter yeah. campaign for that. Yeah, so I'm yep, yep. glad to see that that got, you know, funded and that it's going to be coming out. That's awesome. Yep, yep. So it's nice to, I mean, it's a big story to fit into two hours, but 
but I think he's done a great job. And, and um, yeah, so, so there's different ways that you can experience the story, everything from the blog to, um, to the book series to, to the film. Yeah, it's great. So there's a lot of ways to find out more about this story. We've just scratched the surface on it uh, with a few of your stories with getting hit and all. But I know there's, you know, obviously 13 years worth of memories and experiences that people are going to be able to see through the books and the movies. So keep an eye out for that. Um, Jason, it's been an absolute honor having you on the show. Um, Before I let you go, is there any other way people can get a hold of you? They can find you on your website, Expedition 360 or Jason Explored. You, You use Twitter a little bit? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, I have a Twitter account and also Facebook. So, so yeah, you can connect through through any of those mediums. Also LinkedIn. So, uh, so yeah, I would love to hear from you. All right, yeah, and listeners, if you have a question for Jason that we haven't answered here in the podcast, or you just want to tell him how inspiring his story is, uh, leave a comment over on the post at extrapackpants dot com. I'll make sure Jason gets to them. And this is you know one of the most amazing feats. I, in my mind of, of human you know willpower and strength and desire so it's not too often you can listen to someone uh, who has circumnavigated the globe so give him some love in the comments and jason again thanks so much for coming on i look forward to continuing to follow your journey reading the next couple books and hopefully seeing the movie at some point absolutely yeah thank you so much for having me travis uh, my pleasure don't forget to follow jason at expedition360.com or on twitter at Explorer Jason, and seriously, go pick up uh, the first book. I can personally vouch for the fact that it's a phenomenal read. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to it on iTunes, and if you're really feeling generous, go ahead, give it a rating. So until next time, thanks again, Jason. Happy free travels. Yeah, well, you don't have to go.